1: Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigan, and of course, as always, I'm very, very happy uh, to have you here. Uh, we're going to devote our show today to uh, talking about uh, the latest information, the latest data, uh, the latest projections about climate change. And uh, one of the reasons we're going to uh, look at this today is because it was just a little bit over a week ago that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a group of scientists and politicians who are uh, assembled by uh, the United Nations, uh, put out their most recent report on uh, changes in in the climate and the impact that climate change is having on the globe. And it's a dire report. I'm going to just, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to read a little bit from a couple of articles about their report in a moment. But before we talk climate change, and I introduce the distinguished panel that Sam Burmess-Dawes has assembled for this conversation, I want to turn briefly to uh, Tamar Hallerman, my Tuesday partner on the show, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hi, Tamar. The, the reason I'm turning to you is, I think, as you know, is we've spent a lot of time on the show over the past week or so talking about uh, concerns among some about Governor Kemp's response to the surge of COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, crowding of ICUs in the state. Um, some people who think he hasn't done enough. Others who wish he would stop uh, local communities from uh, mandating masks, whatever. Uh, but yesterday afternoon, uh, the governor uh, had a, uh, a, a made an announcement uh, in which he suggested two steps he is ready to take to address the problem. Um, I'll mention them briefly and then get you to uh, weigh in. First, he is going to give state employees an extra holiday, the Friday before Labor Day, and encourage them, if they're not already vaccinated, to use that day to get a vaccine. Um, And then, second... He is going to um, earmark something like $125 million for hiring new health care workers who can staff uh, hospitals that have been overrun once again, primarily in rural Georgia. Tamar?
0: Yeah, and that's a huge step because it's in a lot of those regional hospitals where they've really been feeling the pinch. Metro Atlanta is blessed to have multiple hospital systems here, uh, but especially when you see what's happening in places like Valdosta and Albany, it's pretty heartbreaking to hear. So, yeah, he's spending about $125 million to finance some 1500 additional hospital workers. Um, he says he's readying about 450 beds in nine regional hospitals. Um, And yes, uh, pushing through another state holiday to encourage uh, people to get vaccinated. He, as you mentioned, has been under a ton of pressure to to do things. And surely his critics will say that this is not nearly enough. The governor says he will not do any sort of mask mandate. He will not be mandating state workers to be getting the vaccine. And he talks about kind of staying the course and business as usual. He does not want to do anything that will shutter the economy, uh, change the situation at schools. And so he'll be criticized for that. the same time, conservatives have been angry at him for not banning mask mandates as they have in, in places like Texas. So he's under a, a tough situation and he'll be pressured to do even more as case tallies rise.
1: Yeah, the governor has been threading a very, very uh, a small hold needle on this one. He certainly isn't Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is now threatening to uh, stop the pay of educators in the state if they require mandates in their individual school districts. Um, he's not Greg Abbott in Texas, who's also taken draconian steps to uh, prevent any kind of mandates. But as you point out, what's going to be interesting, tomorrow is this is a long game um, that's gonna be played here. It will watch to see how the governor's steps impact the the spread of, of COVID-19 in the state and whether his effort to keep the state completely open for business will in fact lead to far more cases. And we're gonna to have to watch that over time, Tamar.
0: And something that's changing that we didn't see in the spring is first of all, all these children who are back in schools in person, but also with a Delta variant that's far more transmissible. And in a ton of states across the South, particularly in Florida, Texas, Mississippi, children's hospitals are running out of bed space because there are so many kids coming in with COVID-19 or or a respiratory um, virus that's also causing issues. And so I think it's it's when children start getting hurt that a lot of people start changing their minds. That pressure you know, the, the pressure increases. So I think we'll start seeing more changes potentially um, coming, especially, you know, we've already seen 4,000 cases of the virus being reported in um, school districts across Metro Atlanta. So there'll be even more pressure as we go.
1: Um, thank you for that. We'll we'll have more to say about this and other political news uh, back on the agenda for tomorrow's show. But today, I really do want to turn our attention to this dire report Uh, and what our panel has to say about climate change in Georgia and really around the globe. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Marshall Shepard. He is the Georgia Athletic Association Distinguished Professor of Geography and Atmospheric Sciences at University of Georgia. You all may know Dr. (laughs) Shepard primarily Uh, from a very popular show that the Weather Channel has run, uh, Weather Geeks. Uh, Dr. Shepard, thanks for joining us today. Thank thank you for having me, Bill. Um, Weather Geeks is, by the way, we like to promote where we can, available as a podcast too, right?
2: Uh, That's primarily where we do it these days with the changing landscape of media. Um, Many of the demographic we're trying to reach, they stream and podcast as opposed to sit in front of a TV. So definitely check us out.
1: All right. Well, it's great to have a geek uh, as part of this panel today. Thank you for being here, Dr. Shepard. Dr. Marilyn Brown also joins us today, a professor of sustainable systems in the School of Public Policy at uh, Georgia Tech. Uh, Dr. Brown, tell us what it means to be a professor of sustainable systems, if you don't mind.
3: Well, it gets It allows me to uh, do research which is interdisciplinary in nature because, you know, the problems we face require expertise of all variety. But, of course, my focus is on action that can be taken of a political policy nature. So, yep, love it.
1: Um, We're also joined today by Dr. Nirajan Dekal, associate professor and vice chair of environmental and health sciences at Spelman College, Dr. Dukal, thank you so much for being with us today.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Bill, for uh, for having me at this interesting show.
1: Um, we're going to want to focus a lot on what's happening in Georgia, of course. And we have some interesting uh, projections about how climate change is going to continue to impact the state here. But if we can, um, let me start uh, with the report that's in the news this morning that really tells us something about how, how, just how desperate the situation is becoming, especially in the western part of the United States. Um, Dr. Brown, let me start with you. The, uh, the, uh, the Department of Interior, an agency as, uh, as, as part of the Department of Interior, has now declared uh, that it is going to have to start uh, reducing water flow in the Colorado River, because Lake Mead is at the lowest point it's been since Hoover Dam, which is what created uh, uh, Lake Mead, uh, opened many years ago. And this is going to have, uh, initially, an enormous impact on the state of Arizona, where it could, in fact, reduce water supplies to the state by some 20 percent. And, Dr. Brown, a lot of this has to do with drought, obviously, and drought is one of the functions of climate change.
3: Yes, that's true. I mean, originally, the Colorado River was going to be delivering water all the way down to Mexico, and that uh, promise has not lasted very long. Uh, the 20% shortfall uh, will mean that uh, downstream uh, farmers and uh, businesses and uh states are going to be looking underground for water. It' going to be much more expensive to meet their needs to be able to sustain their their populations and economy. It's yeah, terrible
1: situation. dr shepard, Dr. Shepard, you've been looking at this, I think.
2: Yeah, you know i, I think it really, and and, and we did. I, I saw, and I'm sure your followers and listeners are following along on Twitter because I saw you just tweeted the episode of Weather Geeks, where we talked about water rights issues. You know, I think it illustrates something that we've been talking about for decades. People like me and Marilyn Brown and others, the extremes associated with climate change and that are talked about in the IPCC report, they're not happening in 2100. They're not happening in the polar bears. They're happening right now, and we're seeing implications for our day-to-day lives, what I often call our kitchen table issues. Water is literally the substance of life. And now for essentially almost an entire half of our country, uh, we're seeing significant restrictions on a main vein of water uh, in that region. so these are the types of things that we've been concerned about, in addition to the physical changes, the sea level rise, the melting ice, the intensifying hurricanes. It's these issues related to water, agriculture, public health and infrastructure that I think people can resonate with in a day to day capacity.
1: Um, Dr. Ducal, we have certainly not had that kind of issue with the Chattahoochee River. We have other problems with diverting resources, the water from the river to Alabama and Florida, but one of them has not been a function of drought, because fortunately we haven't suffered drought in recent years here. But is this at least a shot across the bow, a cautionary tale about what could happen in our own state if, in fact, we do endure a long period of drought at some point in the future.
3: Uh,
4: yeah, uh, in some sense, because, uh, yeah, we are lucky to be in, in a region where we have uh, Go plenty, ahead. Of, plenty of water. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, there are a lot of... Uh, issues especially if we think about metropolitan atlanta region where a lot of people are moving in Um, uh, urbanization is rapidly growing so uh, maybe not in the short term but in the long term uh, we might ultimately face uh, such issues and we we know that uh, we we are facing extreme heat issues already and urban heat island uh, issues are being uh, being seen across the metropolitan uh, Atlanta region. So in the long term, uh, ultimately we might even face uh, such an uh, uh, extreme drought uh, condition.
0: It's worth noting that Georgia has spent more than $50 million of taxpayer money defending itself at the Supreme Court over the last seven years against a legal yeah. challenge brought by the state of Florida, yeah. having to do with our behavior during a drought in 2012, which they Claimed unsuccessfully in the end, but they claimed killed the uh, you know their iconic oyster industry in the mm-hmm. Appalachicola Bay. Um, fights like this are only going to become more common as droughts and extreme weather, extreme heat, become more common because of climate change. So um, you know, while what's happening in Colorado with a lot of water rights over there is different, they handle water water rights differently in the West than we do in the East. All of it. You know, is something worth watching, because in Georgia, we're going to have more of these fights as it becomes more common.
1: So, yeah. Um, Dr. Shepard, uh, let's talk a bit about give us an overview of the um, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report, which was just published a week ago um, yesterday and which really did. Uh, cause a, an enormous response um, because it is their sharpest, harshest assessment of where we're headed right now. And, and to lead into that, let me read uh, to you just briefly uh, from a, an article The Atlantic did on the report. A new United Nations-led report from hundreds of climate scientists around the world makes it clear the human-driven cli- driven climate crisis is now well underway Earth is likely hotter now than it's been at any moment since the beginning of the last ice age, 125,000 years ago, and the world has warmed 1.1 degrees Celsius or nearly 2 degrees Fahrenheit since the Industrial Revolution began. They call that an unprecedented and rapid change with no parallel in the common era. What's more, the recent spate of horrific heat waves, fire-fueled droughts, and flood-inducing storms that have inhab- have imperiled the inhabited world are not only typical of glo- global warming, but directly caused by it. Dr. Shepard, you go first on this one.
2: Sure. Let me just sort of, for the listeners, the IPCC report is really the gold standard of peer-reviewed science. And let me explain what peer-reviewed science is. We have a lot of people out there that won't get the vaccine because they say the FDA has not uh, finalized its approval. Well, here's a great point in that people rely on the FDA for approving and substantiating the food and drugs that we eat in our science type of world that we deal with the peer review. Uh, objective uh, sort of vetting of the science and the methods is what we stand on. We don't stand on tweets and editorials and op-eds. We stand on the peer review. And so that's what the IPCC report has done, and it has done that periodically over the last several decades. It's been increasingly clear. It's been increasingly firm in its language that words like unequivocal are now used uh, in this latest version of the report. And so I wrote an article in Forbes recently uh, saying, yes, this IPCC is what we as climate scientists do with coming. It's not a surprise to us, but we don't need to continue to just sort of cover the reports from a policy standpoint. We need action. We need the types of things that I know Marilyn's going to talk about at some point, like draw down Georgia and the things associated with that. We need policy actions. And again, as, as I close, uh, these policy actions and the perspective on climate change is not a left-right issue. It's not a blue-right issue. Climate change, the hurricanes don't care whether we're Republican or Democrat. Uh, they just rain and cause a lot of wind. So uh, we, we need to act, and I think that report has given us a mandate
1: unlike previous reports. Dr. Brown, um, the, the the report says that each of the last four decades has been successively warmer than any of the decades since 1850. Um, And and here in Georgia, um, another organization which monitors state-by-state climate change and projects possible future impact uh, says that in 2020, we had, I think, 16 days uh, that were uh, considered medically dangerous in terms of the heat, but that by 2050, the projection is that we could have as many as 90 days of medically dangerous heat in the state. Dr. Brown? Uh,
3: yes, and, and uh, of course, global warming is very uh, costly to places like Atlanta and Georgia. But I wanted to put a slightly different spin on this conversation to note that uh, many uh, skeptics have used global warming— the notion that the climate is getting gradually warming as a way to challenge the importance of this trend. Because in many areas of the world, warming is good. In fact, there's this whole discussion now about how warming is better than cooling. And why should we try to return to pre-industrial revolution temperatures? Isn't it better to be a little warmer, speaking for the earth as a whole? Now, you can argue that, of course, it doesn't apply to Georgia, uh, but you can't deny the fact that extreme events are costly to everyone. And that's been, I think, the twist that's been taken most recently, the attribution of our uh, consuming of fossil fuels to the increasingly extreme and severe weather events. So uh, we can't get away with saying, oh, warming's okay, we can handle it because we can't handle everything.
2: Uh, I just Um, want to quickly echo that, Bill. I'm sorry. That's a key point because the focus has been so much on the heat. Um, You know, the fever is just a symptom of a, a larger sickness. The real problem is when the body shuts down or the systems in the body react to two or three degrees of fever. So the warming is just sort of the indicator. It's the sea level rise, the increased storms, melting sea ice, and other ecosystem damage. That's really what we need to be talking
1: about going forward. Dr. Ducal, help us understand, um, I think it's difficult uh, for people to understand this notion that a two and a half degree rise in temperatures uh, is uh, foreboding, is dangerous. Uh, And it's similar. Dr. Brown says, you know, in some places, heat is seen as good. It's just a question of extreme heat. How dangerous is a 2.5 degree increase, Fahrenheit increase, in temperatures?
4: Uh, it's uh, yeah. So in general public sense, that 2.3 degrees centigrade uh, might might look normal, but uh, when you look at its impact in broader scale and global scale, uh, its uh, impact is huge. Think about it. Uh, how the, the increase in temperature of 2.3 degrees centigrade is going to impact glaciers. So, directly, or indirectly, it impacts uh, sea level rise. Um, so, in, in, in different scale, uh, as Dr. Brown and Dr. Shepherd uh, were mentioning, we're uh, mentioning uh, it, it could impact uh, the extreme events. So, uh, events like uh, drought uh, or uh, extreme precipitation, hurricanes, these are all driven by this uh, temperature uh, and a global cycle of water cycle uh, that causes these events are driven by this uh, temperature. So, 2.3 degree is actually uh, in terms of energy that it generates and that impacts uh, these global cycle of the uh, events like droughts or floods. Uh, uh, and their uh, overall economic impact, or uh, public health impact, is devastating.
1: So, yes. Yeah. Tamar, it feels to me as though journalists have a, res- a role here in helping uh, explain something like that. What does a you know a two degree plus increase in temperature mean really uh, to all of us? And for that matter. Uh, the people who are looking, as some of our panel are very seriously at climate change, uh, has a responsibility to figure out how do we put this in terms that the public really grasps.
0: Absolutely. And I think something that that's helped me just in general in my career is localizing a lot of this. You know, I get... We can talk on a grand scale about all of this, but what does this mean in your own backyard? Um, what does it mean if we're ha- we're experiencing all of these deadly heat waves that that maybe would have happened only once in a generation before, but are now happening with you know every year or every couple years? How many people die with each average heat wave? What will it do to our energy grid? Um, which areas of the city or the state are more prone to flooding? Um, what about the the coast and hurricanes? Um, I think that really helps. And um, one thing for Atlanta, and I know we can get into this later, is also um, kind of the domino effect. Even if we're not necessarily getting hit um, in the past, and I know especially after Hurricane Katrina, we ended up getting a lot of kind of climate refugees who ended up settling in the area permanently after what happened in Louisiana. So I think there's all sorts of things that can help people understand this is what it means for me in my backyard, even if what's happening in Antarctica or in Bangladesh or even Miami Beach, that might not hit home to everyone.
1: Uh, Dr. Shepard, it probably shouldn't be surprising at this point to say that there is a disparity between uh, different populations of people here in Georgia who are most affected by climate change. And and the point of that is to say it is largely uh, city dwellers, African-Americans who live in uh, communities in the city with a lot of pavement, very not as much green space, uh, reflected heat off pavement. Um, so this becomes, in some ways, uh, is it, is it overstatement to say that it becomes, to some extent, a civil rights issue?
2: Uh, it is not. A, that, that's not an overstatement. In fact, my good friend Reverend Gerald Durley has said as much in an op-ed that he wrote in the Huffington yeah. Post. Green, um, yeah, the vulnerabilities to marginalized populations, poor, elderly, children, even rural. Um, uh, inhabitants of our state uh, irrespective of their race are vulnerable in fact we've done the study I mean we published a paper in 2015 out of the University of Georgia with one of my former graduate students Dr. Benita Casey we looked at the climate vulnerability of every single county in the state of Georgia and of course the urban counties um, popped out as quite vulnerable because of urban heat uh, the, the, the flooding but also the people that live in them. That, that vulnerability accounting is not, not just the storms and the flooding. It's a combination of those things and who is less able to bounce back from these events and who is most sensitive but we also found that the coastal regions are vulnerable because of sea level rise we found that many of the southern counties of the state where agriculture is very important uh, is increasingly vulnerable to the variability associated with drought in the state because many of the workers in the fields there depend on these seasonal jobs and if there's drought and that causes a shutdown of their their agricultural jobs or the productivity and the economy of those regions That's a vulnerability marker. And so that's, uh, Bill, I really appreciate you bringing that point to bear because these equity and justice issues surrounding climate change, particularly in our state of Georgia, where we depend on seafood, we depend on agriculture and so forth,
1: uh, is important. Dr. Brown, weigh in on this before we have to get to a break.
3: Okay. I wanted to mention there's also a uh, discriminatory, racial, and uh, unfortunate edge to the policies that have been implemented to address climate change. Many of those, for instance, take federal tax credits to be able to retrofit your house or buy an electric vehicle. You know, marginalized communities don't have tax liabilities. They can't take advantage of these breaks. You can just, you know, march through the policy uh, tools and you'll see that they are not reaching out, not uh, inclusive, and, and they need
1: to be reformed. Tamar, before we break, I want to give you the last word.
0: Yeah, one little other point on racial equity that as I was doing my reading for this episode really struck me is that there's been research done that found, um, you know, that talks about the canopy cover, you know, trees and how important that yeah. is to help um, people when there's extreme heat. And the legacy of redlining yeah. and kind of raising racist housing practices in the mid-20th century, how, you know, poor neighborhoods of color tended to have less tree canopy cover cover and because of that were hotter and faced more um problems when there was extreme heat than whiter richer neighborhoods
1: um all right Tamar hallerman you get the last word for this segment we'll be back with a lot more by the way the organization states at risk which i mentioned a little while ago is kind of looks at state by state the impact of global warming Uh, Their research shows them that Atlanta is the 19th fastest warming city in the United States. And, of course, uh, we have a large African-American community in the city. More than 310,000 people living in Georgia beyond the city are vulnerable to extreme heat. So it is not a problem just in the city of Atlanta. We'll be back with more on climate change in just a moment. You're listening to Political Rewind. Dr. Nirajan Dekal, Dr. Marilyn Brown, Dr. Marshall Shepard, and Tamar Hallerman all join uh, me today for this uh, edition of Political Rewind, in which we're talking about climate change. I know, Dr. Call, you wanted to get a comment in before the break, so uh, why don't you go ahead right now, please? Uh,
4: so, talking about uh, the, the impact of uh, climate change on marginalized communities, Uh, One of the issues which I want to mention is uh, uh, adaptation to the uh, the climate change, and especially with the marginalized communities. uh, I have worked with students uh, who look at uh, issues like environmental justice and climate justice. Uh, One of the key pieces is education. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of uh, of the marginalized, marginalized communities not have enough education, access to the education related to the impact of climate change on the community. So uh, so the issue is becomes even more important uh, for, for these communities, uh, uh, for the uh, state of Georgia.
1: Um, uh, thank you for that. Uh, Dr. Brown, let's talk. Uh, Dr. Shepard already mentioned it, so we should bring this up. Let's talk about sea levels. Uh, rising. Um, First of all, the report from the United Nations Group uh, concluded that sea level rise will be worse than once thought and could occur quickly and catastrophically. Uh, But they also then go on to say that while things like rising temperatures can be mitigated, there's little that can be done at this point to reverse the rising seas. Why don't you start us off talking about that, please?
3: Yes, I've heard Kim Cobb, who's also a Georgia Tech professor, speak eloquently about that. Once you've lost the uh, Greenland ice sheet or Antarctic ice sheets, you're not going to get them back for you know, a very long period of time. You can reverse temperatures, but you can't recreate these ice sheets or glaciers. Um, yep, that's true.
2: Yeah, and I, and Dr. I would. Shepherd? Yeah, I would simply add to that and just to sort of localize this, uh, uh, Dr. Kim Cobb, who's a close colleague of all of ours, has a smart sea level sensor network that she has placed all along the coast of Georgia, uh, trying to give us an early warning system on on sea level rise because coastal communities are increasingly vulnerable, as we showed in our vulnerability analysis. Uh, Coastal communities, there are implications. We heard about sort of uh, what Um, you know, we talked about with climate refugees from storms, Uh, Dr. Matt Hauer, who's now at Florida State University, but he was a graduate student in our department uh, several years ago, did a nice dissertation or study on where people are going to move away from in these coastal communities along in Georgia and Florida and Louisiana. Uh, They are these receptor cities uh, that people will flee, if you will, along the coast and move inland That has implications on population and the economy and jobs and transportation burdens and so forth. So, uh, you know, one of the things that really is lost in the discussion about climate change as we talk about the heat and the flooding and the hurricanes are these social networks, the demographic changes, the climate refugees and migration, even national security and crime. So uh, there are all of these tentacles that, you know, touch people's lives, even if they think it's just about melting um, ice sheets.
1: Um, Tamar, uh, Kim Cobb's name has come up a couple times. She was on the show uh, the last time we talked about climate change. Uh, she's quoted in the Atlantic article that I read from. She says to the Atlantic, once you have melting underway, it's very hard to rein it in, even if you go full scale into reversal of global warming. And then she says, when I say those words, it almost chokes me up. It scares the crap out of me, frankly. This is a horrific long-term consequence to the decisions we'll be making this decade on our watch tomorrow.
0: And I think that makes it harder sometimes to solve a lot of these kind of drastic changes that that scientists say will be needed to, to the public, that at least in America, there, there's more than half the people who are pretty skeptical of all of this. Um, and so that makes it even more of a challenge. You know, this is still why we need to make tough choices. But I wanted to circle back to what Dr. Shepard was saying about kind of all these people moving from the coast and how that could have huge impacts on cities like Atlanta, Um This can kind of tie it all into politics. Um, Ahead of the runoffs in January, I was reporting on Henry and Rockdale County, south of Atlanta, and how they've seen massive political shifts over the last 20 years. These were once... Republican counties that now have become overwhelmingly Democratic. And as I was talking to local party officials in uh, in both of those counties, something that that really surprised me to hear was the number of people who had moved in from Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. Many already had family in the area. And so, hey, Atlanta seems pretty nice. And so they moved and really helped change the political fabric of those places and helped people like Joe Biden, John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock win Georgia. And so climate is having all of these political implications that I don't even think people really truly realize, not to mention economic, social, all those sorts of things.
1: Tamari Hallerman, you are, of course, an impartial journalist, which we appreciate about you. Uh, nevertheless, you're giving a great argument for why Republicans to <laughs> get very active in fighting against climate change. <laughs> They're losing and, votes because of it.
0: <laughs> sure. But it's it's a tough thing to argue, right? Because you these scientists on the IPCC are calling for massive changes to the way that we do everything pretty much. Immediately, but especially in the U.S., our political cycles are so short. These members of the House and of the legislature are reelected every two years. And unfortunately, kind of massive, hard changes are not things that do well in campaign pledges. And so it becomes yeah. really hard, especially when the Republican Party traditionally hasn't emphasized this issue. They you know, are traditionally seen as the party of business. And, and if a lot of large companies are saying they don't want to make these changes, it's too expensive, it becomes hard to argue. you for that stuff
3: but everything has become much more near term you know the discussion is about what's going to happen to the climate in the next few years it's really moved forward quite significantly with this last report which is why it's so such a powerful report i did want to talk about tipping points, though i mean they're somewhere out in the future i don't know how many years i mean who knows but it's uh, very motivating to me when you think about if we don't act seriously now, these tipping points could be triggered and they could be catastrophic.
2: I, I will I will just quickly add to that. You know, Marilyn and I have been involved in a couple of projects, the Georgia Climate Project and Drawdown Georgia, which have been funded by the mm. Racy Anderson Foundation. And one of the things that has been really encouraging to me is that we have seen movement in our Fortune 500 company community here in Atlanta and in Georgia. And even among the political spectrum, I just attended the Georgia Climate Conference, which was hosted by the Georgia Department of Natural Resources down in Jekyll Island last week. And there were perspectives and welcome videos from across the political spectrum. So I hope we're starting to crack this divide that that this is somehow uh, you, if you're a Republican or a conservative, you don't believe in climate change, although climate change is not a belief system, by the way. Or if you're a Democrat or a liberal, you are sort of hanging to a tree somewhere saying, oh no, the world's about to end. We're, we've got to sort of break down these stereotypes and really move to sort of the, the policy middle.
1: So, Dr. Shepard, you were at that conference last week. Um, it sounds like uh, the fact that the Department of Natural Resources put it together is a positive sign. But what comes out of a conference like that? What what did you come away feeling hopeful about?
2: I came away feeling hopeful about the fact that, again, we had mess- welcome messaging from top leaders from all political parties. I came away with clear tools and solution sets uh, proposed across the, the spectrum in the state of Georgia from sea level rise to water management to um, economic development and so forth. They were there were tangible discussions. I mean, we, you know, we, the discussions really weren't about oh, their hurricanes are getting stronger or oh, heat this and that. We know this is important. I'm a scientist. That's the kind of language I talk. But a lot of the discussion was about how we move forward in terms of the solutions. What can we do locally in counties and local cities, jurisdictions, and so forth? So I I left very excited about the fact that, look, although because of COVID restrictions, we had a full house, relatively speaking, of 350 people. We could have had a couple of thousands had we not, uh, you know, been somewhat restricted. So – there's movement in the state. Uh, Georgia actually, quiet as kept, is quite the leader nationally and seen as a leader on, on climate action through things like Drawdown Georgia and climate, Georgia Climate Project. So I, I like to get that message out there, the Georgians, because you may have this perception that we're sort of sort of just sort of laying in the weeds here. But we're actually moving in this state.
1: Dr. Brown, I. Uh- why don't we talk a little bit uh, about solutions, and let's talk more about Drawdown Georgia, which Dr. Shepard just told us the two of you have been active in. Just what is Drawdown Georgia all about? What are you what are you what are you hoping to accomplish? what What is the movement in the direction of your uh, goals on this?
3: All right. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk a bit about uh, Drawdown Georgia. And then the terminology of movement is very apropos because it is a grassroots movement that's underpinned by a research effort supported by all the major universities Mm -hmm. in the state of Georgia. And it's uh, seeking to identify and activate high-impact solutions to address climate change in Georgia. There were two sessions at the uh, Georgia Climate Conference dealing with Drawdown Georgia. One was led uh, by the Scheller College at uh, Georgia Tech looking at the role of the of the business community and uh, talked about the idea of pulling together a business compact that uh, companies could come together, sort of create a climate club, if you will, and learn from one another, have common goals, and uh, you know, move forward in a in a uh, deliberative fashion. So there are 10 companies from headquarters in Georgia that have committed to date. I can't name them because it's going to be a big rollout soon in about two months when the compact will be, um, you know, finally uh, unveiled.
1: Yeah. Okay. But give us just one or two examples of what the compact will uh, require or what these companies will agree to do to mitigate yeah. climate change.
3: So we do have principles that we are um, trying to infuse in the compact. One is that there will be um, openness and transparency in terms of data sharing of the about the company's emissions. And there are different uh, scopes of emissions, what they directly are responsible for, what their suppliers are responsible for, what their employees are are responsible for. And they're going to also be asked to um, agree to substantial goals, not just inching forward, but goals that are consistent with the 1.5 degree uh, goal of the Paris conference.
1: I, I, do you know what those? What an example of those goals, those substantial goals, is going to be one example of that, for instance?
3: Yeah, to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the year 2030 by 50% over the baseline of 2005. That's kind of the okay. gold standard, if you will. I'm yeah. uh, hoping that yeah. they'll all adopt that. They might not, but that's what we're pushing for. And then also common you know, sharing of lessons learned. That's often hard to do, do- in business because business is a competitive enterprise.
1: Yeah, that's Dr. Nicole. that it really makes me think about this in a different way. We know that last year, um, when Black Lives Matter uh, became such a powerful movement, uh, businesses responded perhaps more uh, positively to looking at uh, how race plays a role in their companies, how it plays a role in the way they reach their customers, how their customers feel about, um, uh, about equality and equitable treatment for all people. And when business moves, things can happen. And it feels to me like what Dr. Brown is saying, Dr. DeCall, is a similar kind of idea. And businesses have been embracing, to some extent, uh, moving on climate change, especially carbon emissions, I think. But it's going to require even more. Yes, Dr. DeCall?
4: Yeah, and uh, that's the reason I was uh, mentioning earlier about education. Uh, uh, and that's a very important part uh, of uh, uh, climate sustainability uh, or climate adaptation. Uh, and uh, we have been talking about extremes. uh, uh so these extreme events, if they're they're happening more frequently, these business are going to feel the impact. Uh, and uh, if if uh, those kind of impacts or uh, the the information that uh, the, that they are able to uh, get uh, from the media are able to kind of uh, 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 make them understand uh, that in not only in the long term but even in the short term uh, it can uh, the effect of the climate change can impact the economy uh, then uh, then in, uh, we, we can expect that uh, in a shorter sense or uh, uh, in shorter scale or longer scale uh, these business owners are going to learn uh, about uh, uh, and
1: try to uh, divert towards the climate change. Uh, tomorrow, that brings us around to a subject I want to pick up on after the final break of the show, and that's the politics of climate change. Um, so why don't we get to our break, and when we come back, tomorrow, I'm going to start off the conversation by asking you a little bit about what's in President Biden's reconciliation package that he hopes will have an impact on climate change. And we'll get the rest of the panel involved in that part of the conversation uh, after these messages. We're back on political rewind. Tomorrow, I mentioned that the reconciliation package, Joe Biden's GOP 3.5 trillion dollar package, uh, includes some measures which he says will address climate change, tax incentives for clean energy and electric vehicles, investments to transition away from to, to uh, transition away from fossil fuels towards renewable sources of energy like wind and solar power. Uh, and others. But here's what I think is interesting about this, tomorrow. The the we always we it is quite often it is Republicans who are blamed for not advancing climate change regulation. And that's in part because we have had Republicans who deny it as a reality, including the former president himself. But in 2009, the last time there was an effort to pass climate change legislation, it was congressional Democrats that didn't approve the carbon pricing system that President Obama put in place. So we need bipartisan solutions.
0: Yeah, it was a cap and trade bill that that managed to pass the house after months and months of wrangling that ended up dying in the Senate and actually was a huge contributing factor to the the Tea Party wave in in 2010 that ended up uh, booting a lot of Democrats from um, from the House. I grew up in rural Virginia in coal country uh, with a longtime Democratic representative who who had been uh there for some 20 or 30 years, Rick Bouger, who had helped negotiate a lot of carve outs for the coal companies actually in the this cap and trade bill ended this uh this bill ended his career. Um, and he lost to a Tea Party member who's been there ever since. Um, and it's worth noting that the chairman of the Senate Energy Committee, a person who will be very integral to the drafting of this package, is Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who was elected after um, you know, infamously cutting an ad where he uh was shooting the cap and trade bill with a shotgun. So a lot of these Provisions will change. Um, This reconciliation plan is very bare bones. It really is just providing instructions for about a dozen committees in both the House and the Senate. So these details are going to be filled in, and many could ultimately be watered down. Remember, Democrats have zero margin for error in the Senate. They they can afford to lose zero votes, so that means they're going to have to make Bernie Sanders happy, but they also very much have to make Joe Manchin happy. So a lot of things will change because of that. A lot of things will change because of the Senate parliamentarian because this is a reconciliation bill, that means that um, a, lot, a lot of things can be struck down. There are special rules that come with a bill like this so that it can only pass with 50 votes as opposed to 60. And so she could end up striking down a lot of these provisions.
1: Dr. Shepherd, um, I, I know this is a generalization, but I'll ask you to speak to it in any case. Is it likely that we're going to see real political progress on fighting climate change? Or is it going to come primarily from the private sector, in your opinion? Well
2: two answers to that. One, uh, I I do think we're going to see movement because we already are seeing movement. Uh, The infrastructure bill is implicitly a a climate change bill, too. If you look at some of the things that uh, the Senate just passed in the infrastructure bill, uh, there are things related to uh, EV, expanding the EV network. I I just bought an electric vehicle, and I'm looking forward to that because when I drove to Jekyll (laughs) Island, I I had some challenge. Um, But again, I think there's already action. I looked at the last presidential election cycle There was far more discussion about climate change than I'd ever seen. So I I think it's clearly on the radar of both Republicans and Democrats. I testified before the House Science Committee in 2019, Mm -hmm. and I was getting very clear – uh, intelligent questions from both sides of the aisle because I could tell that they cared about their constituents no matter what they wanted to cause call the things that they were asking me about. Uh, so I, I think there was a thoughtful conversation. Uh, but I do think the business, two, three sectors that I think drive action, the business community, the faith-based communities, and the military, mm-hmm. and all three of those communities are acting aggressively on climate. And when those three act, I think policymakers tend to follow.
1: You know, I'm really glad you mentioned the faith community and that you actually mentioned Gerald Durley, my very good friend, who, as you say, uh, you know, was a former pastor of Providence uh, Missionary Baptist Church, one of the most important churches in uh, Georgia. Uh, he's taken a huge lead in um, uh, talking about climate change and working towards climate change. Thank you for mentioning that uh, on the show. Uh, Dr. Brown, uh, do you agree uh, with Dr. Shepard we're going to see uh, uh, both business and... And government deal with this problem, and then what can you and I do? We're like little sp- spits in a very large puddle.
3: Oh no, no, no! The consumer has an enormous role here. We can make such a difference in exerting our influence on the in the business world. But I did want to also note that uh, um, we will be able to find solutions that are both suitable for a Joe Manchin because they deal with adaptation to climate change, and but also help to reduce carbon emissions. And a great example is weatherization. Our housing stock is in such bad condition, especially in many parts, as you know, of Atlanta and Georgia, rural Georgia. We could spend billions of dollars at, on uh, upgrading the the uh, Energy integrity of our housing and reduce our emissions enormously. But I am very myself personally uh, committed to standards. We need a standard for clean electricity. We need standards for cars, standards for appliances. They've moved the market so effectively. States can do standards. It's not just a federal play. California has many state, you, you know, unique state standards. So that's. That's one of my favorite win-wins.
1: Um, I mentioned what can we do as individuals. You tell me that I'm wrong to assume that we don't have power here. I just want to point out to our listeners that uh, we did a show a couple months back with David Pogue. Uh, David had just written a new book, uh, really an encyclopedic look at how people as individuals can deal with climate change. If you're interested in pursuing that, go look it up on our website or on the Political Rewind uh, podcast, because it gives us lots of good information on what we can each do. Uh, to help fight against uh, what, again, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says has become a dire crisis facing the country. I'm sorry to say we're completely out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, I really appreciate the conversation, Dr. uh, Nirajan DeKal. Dr. Marilyn Brown and Dr. Marshall Shepard, you weather geek. We're glad you were here for today's show as well. Tamar Hallerman, thank you for today. We're back, of course, with a brand new show tomorrow. We'll talk about state politics again. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Yes, please wear a mask, even if you're fully vaccinated, when you're around a lot of people inside. And if you really do know people who don't have a vaccine yet, Figure out how you can talk to them cordially about why it's so important for them and you that they get it. See you all tomorrow.